Welcome to Community Christian Church. My name is Ed. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're glad you're with us at Ashley Park today. You're here for week two of Jesus is Greater Than. And uh, this is our series where between now and Easter, we're just going to follow the life of Jesus as an adult from the time he steps onto the scene of history as an adult until he's ultimately crucified and then resurrected. And his resurrection, it launches the movement that we're a part of today. And today, uh, in week two, we're going to talk about temptation. Now, here's what I know about temptation. At least I know this is true for me. I think it's maybe true for all human beings, but I know it's true for me. Temptation is always an invitation for me to go deeper in self-interest. What I mean by that is when I'm tempted to do something that's uh, wrong, uh, it, I think it's going to be a benefit for me. It might not turn out to be beneficial for me, but when I'm tempted to do it, I think it's going to be a benefit for me. Uh, we don't even call it a temptation when I'm, when I'm moved to do something for somebody else. What I mean is we're often, we have thoughts about doing something selfless to help somebody else, but we wouldn't call that a temptation. If you're Christian, you probably call that a prompting or a leading. Uh, when I'm prompted or led to do something to be selfless toward uh, somebody else, we wouldn't even call, I don't know what you call that other than those things, but we don't call that a temptation because it's to help somebody else. A temptation is when I'm going to do something for me uh, that I think will be beneficial for me. Uh, here's the other thing I've noticed. I know this is true for me. Maybe it's not true for the rest of you. Have you noticed that? Uh, well, I've noticed for me, I am way better at saying no to doing things that might be beneficial for you. When I am led to do something that I think might be a blessing to you or I'm going to sacrifice myself to help you, I can come up with 80 reasons of why you might, might misunderstood and why somebody else might misunderstand. Uh, and I can talk myself out of that. But when it's for me, uh, though there might be 80 reasons why I shouldn't do it, I, I probably can talk myself into doing that pretty easily. Uh, in fact, doing something for you it's really not a temptation at all unless the temptation is I do something nice for you that I can then talk about in a message to make myself look better. <laughs> That's a temptation. And then what I've learned, and maybe you've learned this too, is that, and maybe this is why you're even here or maybe why you're watching this later online today, is I've learned that in the pursuit of doing what I think is best for me, I wind up hurting me. Now, I often, when I'm trying to do things that I think will be right for me and help me, I wind up hurting me, and I often hurt other people. And then Jesus comes along, and Jesus is just so brilliant, and he says uh, something like this. He says, if you make your life about you, like protecting you and doing what's best for you, what you think is right for you, not only will you hurt you and you hurt other people, but eventually you lose you. If you make your life about you, Eventually, the thing you were trying to protect, you lose yourself. Now, this is all right in line with what we talked about last week when uh, we started this series, that Jesus came not to just bring attack on to something else. Jesus came to bring a whole new way. In fact, Jesus didn't come to say, hey, there is another way. Jesus came to say, I'm the way, that you have to follow me, that the way to do this thing is not a little tack on, a little adjustment to the way you're doing it. It's a whole new way you make your life about following me. 
And so last week when we started this thing, we talked about that Jesus came into a scene where there's this man that's really popular. His name's John the Baptist, and he's baptizing people. And while everybody's looking at John, one day G John looks up and says, look, there's the Lamb of God pointing at Jesus that picks up and takes away the sins of the whole world. And Jesus comes to John and says, John, hey, uh, I need to be baptized like you're baptizing other people. And John says, hey, I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals. I'm not going to baptize you. And, and Jesus says, no. This is the way this whole thing starts right with God. This is the righteous way God wants this thing to start. And so he baptizes them. And then as soon as he's finished baptizing them, John begins pointing people toward Jesus. And he says, hey, I'm not that big a deal. Don't follow me. He's the one you ought to follow. But instead of coming out of the water and Jesus going, thank you very much, John, for all your help in setting this whole thing up. But here I am. Everybody follow me. Three out of the four writers about Jesus' life, which we often call biographies, but they're really gospels, which mean good news about Jesus. Uh, three of those four writers in the New Testament, they say instead of stepping on the stage and say, everybody follow me, that immediately after he's baptized and John points to him, Jesus goes off into the wilderness by himself. But it's really more than that. Uh, let me just read it to you. Here's the way writers, the writers say this. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, that's really interesting, I think. Uh, and if you're here and you're a church person, a Bible person, you already know where this is going. Oh, that's right, Jesus went to the desert to be tempted by the devil, and you sort of know the story, and you think you know where you're going. And if you're not a church person, and you don't know what to think about this, you're maybe crossing your arms and thinking, okay, are you... Are you expecting me to believe in a real being called the devil? Well, no, I'm not expecting you to believe anything. That's between you and what you want to believe. But here's what I want to say to both of the groups. If you're here and you think you already know the story about Jesus and the devil, or you're the group with your arms crossed, I want to talk to you about why I think this is included in these stories that are supposed to be good news about Jesus. You see, anytime you're reading ancient literature, and my guess is the only ancient literature, I mean, thousand-year-old literature most of us are reading is, is the Bible. Uh, whenever you're reading ancient literature, and by that I mean it's, it's totally out of your place, totally out of your culture. Uh, for the Bible, it's a different language. It's a different 2,000-year-old culture. You have to not ask, what does, what does this mean? You have to ask, what did the author intend for the people in that culture to hear? What did he... Did, what did he want them to hear about it? And in fact, in, in this culture, you have to, I mean, in a culture where it was exceptionally expensive to write anything, to put something on page and pencil and then to get it where it could be passed around, this is not an easy thing to do, to write something down. It costs an enormous amount of money. So when anything gets written down, you have to ask yourself, why include this detail? This is about to be good news about Jesus bringing something new into the world. Why does this detail get included? Now, there are probably a lot of reasons it's included. And what I want you to see is that what I'm going to talk to you about today is not just a story about how to overcome temptation, though I think there are lessons to be learned there, and it's often been taught that way, and you can find messages of me on the Internet, because once you put it on the Internet, it's there forever, of me teaching 
lessons from this about how to overcome temptation. I'm convinced that this temptation of Jesus is facing is at the core of the story of what Jesus has come to do. It's about this thing that he'll be faced with his whole life long between the ways that are old and the way that everybody understands that the world works and a little tack on to that to get people closer to God and this whole new thing that Jesus has come to do. In fact, it starts with what may be one of the most obvious statements in the whole of the story about Jesus. Here's the way Luke starts it. For 40 days and 40 nights he fasted and became very hungry. You think? You think so he didn't eat for 40 days and 40 nights and he was hungry? Now, you look at that and you go, okay, that's, that's like, duh. But the question again is, why include that? Because Luke also knew if you fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, you would be hungry. So why tell us what's something that should just be very obvious? Well, it goes back again to their culture. See, in our culture, the real debate over Jesus is Jesus was obviously a good man with a lot of good teaching, but he's just a man like other men that led people to God. He's just a man. But that wasn't the thought about Jesus to these first writers that Luke is, is writing to. I mean, in their day, when they're just... 30, 40 years from the time when Jesus actually was on the planet and he's healing people and he's been resurrected and rumors of his resurrection are everywhere. And there are people that not only say they saw him resurrected, there are even more people that saw him resurrect people from the dead and heal people and they heard him teach and nobody was like him. There weren't people walking around saying that was a really good man. There were people going, that was God. He wasn't no man. So what the Luke and the other writers want us to get is no, he was both. He was God, and he was man. So here's Jesus, the God-man, and he's fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and he's hungry. And anybody who's ever done anything in recovery knows that when you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, you're vulnerable. I mean, you're weak. It's like, here's Jesus. He's as weak as he can be. He's vulnerable as he can be. It's like, God leads him into the desert, and it's like he's saying to the temperature, okay, come on, give this your best shot. I want you to know that I am serious about not this little tack-on thing to the kingdoms of the world or the way they are. This is a whole new way. So the tempter came to him when he was weak. And now, that word, tempter, is a different word in their language. It's why I use that translation because it's the actual Greek word, tempter, not devil, which we often think of and the way it often gets said in, in English. It's, it's tempter, which just means the inquisitor, the tester. This is the one, it's the one that can get out of you what nobody else can get out of you. They poke you in a way that things come out that nobody else can get out of you. And the tempter says to him, hey, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And in other words, he just speak. You and I both know you're God. I mean, we know how this whole thing began, that you, God, the, the Trinity, you spoke the world into existence, that you just say things and, and things change. So, hey, you're hungry. There's some stones here. Talk to them. They'll become bread for you. You have the ability. Why not just do it for yourself? And what he quotes to him is, he quotes to him the old covenant, the the tempter points him back to the old way. But Jesus, who even though he was a bridge between the old and the new, and he's going to close the door on the new and step on the old and step into the new, 
He lived his life under the old, and so he quotes the old back to the tempter, and he says, it's written, people don't live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He points back to a statement from, from Moses, and it's a time, and again, the way they used Scripture in their day was they were so immersed in it, and it was an oral tradition that when you could say a, just a word out of it, they would go back to the whole story in their mind. It's a story where God was he was giving people food to eat day by day in the wilderness. I mean, he was providing manna for them miraculously. And it wasn't about them having something to eat. It was them learning a daily dependence on God that every day I have to turn my life and my will over to you. Every day I depend on you. And Jesus is reminding the tempter, okay, yeah, I, I could do that, but that's not what I'm here to do. I'm, I'm, I'm here as human. And so like humans have to do, I'm going to trust God to provide. I'm not going to trust in my ability to get this for myself. That's, that's the kingdom of this world. I'm going to trust that God will take care of me. I'm going to live the way everybody should live before God, trusting him every day. So then, the devil takes him to the highest point of the temple. Now, that may sound to you like they time travel or whatever. Maybe that's the picture you have in mind. That's the picture I used to have in my mind. But that's because you and I have seen a lot of sci-fi or we've watched a lot of horror movies and the devil can do anything. But again, when you read ancient commentaries, they, they don't think that. And the reason is because they don't have that palette in their mind of sci-fi and horror movies. They taught that the devil and Jesus, they hung out and they walked from the wilderness to Jerusalem and that they were together and the devil took him to the temple and took him to the to the highest point and and this isn't like a steeple you think of a high point in a church and the churches you've seen that have really high they got a steeple on them no this is the southeast corner of the temple and it's more rectangular and they went and stood on the southeast corner and from that point you can look hundreds and hundreds of yards down into the Kedron Valley in the Kedron Valley Jesus could see everything and, and the devil says to him hey why don't you just take a leap off of here because, hey, you and I both know your father's promised to take care of you while you're here as a human, and, and you want everybody to pay attention to you and know that you're the son of God. Why don't you, I mean, you'll make a really big show out of this thing, and we both know, I mean, if you trust him, I mean, he's already said he would take care of you, so if you jump off, he's going to send his angels, and they're going to catch you just before you hit the ground. It'll be spectacular. It's what you want. Let's just get it done. And what the devil's doing in that moment is what often uh, many of us are tempted to do. He taunts Jesus. He says, hey, didn't God promise to take care of you? Don't you know the promises of God? Don't you have any faith? I mean, you're the one that said every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Surely you trust every word that comes out of the mouth of God, Jesus. And in this moment, he's tempting Jesus with something that has become so much a part of American Christianity. He's tempting He's tempting people, he's tempting Jesus to use God. He's tempting him to use him. And in fact, this is the way people in our world often think about faith. See, the faith that some of you were brought up in, the faith that some of you left behind, and it's the reason you left the church, the faith that some of you, you need to leave behind, it's the faith that says, hey, if you just believe it, you'll receive it. If you, just, if you can just believe it, then it can happen. If you can just believe it enough, if you can just find the place where God says the thing and you claim his promise and you repeat his promise back to him, you can 
put God in a bind. You can get God in a box. And, I mean, you can get, just quote God's promises back to him. You do trust his promises to it. That's what faith is. Just trust his promises and God has to do it. A lot of you think that's faith, but you get, that's the lines of the devil here. That's what the tempter is saying. And Jesus answered him and said, it's also written, you don't put the Lord God to a test. And he quotes Moses in that where people have come at Moses and they say to Moses, hey, the Lord brought us out here and he owes us. The Lord owes us to take care of us. He promised he'd take care of us. He promised he'd follow it. He'd take care of us. And now he's not doing what we think he ought to do. And Moses answers them and said, hey, look, you can't put God to a test. Let's just be clear. God doesn't owe you. God, God doesn't owe you anything. And for, for some of you, that may be the whole thing you came to hear today. You can't put God in a box. And you walk around saying you're, you're a follower of Jesus, but most of the time you're trying to manipulate God. You're trying to pray something and you pray it with a promise attached to it, and you pray and you pray and you pray, and somebody told you if you say these three things or you do it exactly this way or you fast this number of times or you get something in line, then you get God in a bond and God has to do what you want to. Just know at that moment that you aren't practicing faith, you're practicing magic. And you're like binding God in. That's exactly the thing that Jesus came to do away with. And here's why I say that. That way of, of seeing God is it's just a wrong view of God. That way of God, seeing God is like, God made these promises, but he doesn't really want to do them, so you've got to get them and quote them back to him somehow, and then if you can just get God in the right place at the right time with the right pressure, then he has to do it. And Jesus said, no, God, God's not like that. God is God's a good father, and you should call him Father. And if you being, a, I mean, you're earthly and you know you're not perfect. You want to be a good dad. But if, if you as a parent, you want to do good for your kid. But if your kid came and asked you for something that you know ultimately wouldn't be for their benefit, it doesn't matter how much they said, but you said, but you said, but you said. Doesn't matter how much you say that. You know, no matter how much they quote you to you, they can't make you do something for them that would be bad for them. So, Jesus said, hey, God's a good father, and you need to just trust him and trust that he wants the best for you, and he's going to provide for you. Don't put him to a test. Now, that's the first of these two. That's the first of the two. But really, I think, I think the third one is the main event. I think it's the main thing. I think the first two are sort of like a warm-up act. They're they're sort of feeling each other out. They're getting to where they're going to go. And then it comes the third one. And we're going to get to the third one. But before we get to the final one, uh, because in the final one, the, the devil makes clear that even when he leaves after this third one, he's going to come back at Jesus. In fact, that's why I say I think this is the temptation. This, this temptation is the one that Jesus deals with his whole life long. But before we get to this third one, I want to talk to you about us for a minute. And what I mean by us is I want to talk to you about human beings, all of us. And I think, I think you and I have seen the same thing in human beings. And there's a question that all of us have had at some point, And it's a question that goes something like this. Is, 
Why do the people with the most power tend to go the most off the rails? I mean, why is it that people that have the most power tend to go off the rails ethically or morally or they go off the rails financially? Why is it that people who get to the top seem to like inevitably they wind up destroying themselves? I mean, you and I both think that if you had that kind of power, I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you don't feel the kind of pressure that we feel. You don't kind of have the time of restraints that we have. You have more freedom than we have. You're at the top of the ladder. Why would it be when you get to the top that you almost always wind up failing? Because you and I think, and why is it that people with the most power, they wind up, when they get to that place, they wind up doing the opposite of what all of us think we would do? Because you think, hey, if I got to the place where I had the kind of freedom and power that other people have, I would do so much good. I would, I would correct things, and I would do justice, and I would set things right. But you and I have both seen it, that when people get power, they tend to use their power for, for themselves. They wind up turning and using it for themselves. I'm going to do what I can for me. Why? And, and I know there are exceptions. I mean, I know everybody here can point to exceptionally powerful and wealthy people that have used their power and wealth for the good of others. The reason they're exceptions is because we know that's not the rule. We know that there's, for every one of those, there's ten of the other kind, that everything they do is about them. And why is it that powerful people tend to use their power only for themselves and wealthy people only tend to use their wealth for themselves and influential people only use their influence for themselves? I mean, if you want to get down to a lower level, if you can't see it there because you think, you know, why is it that everybody thinks I'm talking about power at the ultimate level? Let's talk about it a little bit. Where does bullying come from in kids? Why is it even at a low level that when you're a little bit stronger than somebody else, you, you want to push down on the little guy. Why is it in high school there is a thing of mean girls? There's almost always the prettiest and the most popular tend to use that for their benefit, and it's not just good enough to use it for their benefit. They have to put others down. Why is it that the most popular, the strongest, the most athletic almost always use that at that age for something else, to push down on other people? Where does that come from? Well, this is why you ought to consider following Jesus, even if you can't, even if you don't get the church, and you, and and I get that Christians have got this wrong. You need to at least consider Jesus and what Jesus said, because throughout Jesus' ministry, Jesus just taught and modeled, and then taught and modeled and taught and modeled all the way to the end of his life something that doesn't even sound that new to you, and the reason it doesn't sound new to you is because when Jesus brought it, it got so enveloped in the Western world that it seems normal to you. But to his day, it blew their mind because they had never heard of God this way, or as people in there would say, would say the gods aren't like that. Jesus taught and modeled and taught and modeled that when a person has power, their power is to be used for the weak, not for themselves. The people who are strong should use their strength to help the weak. In their world where might made right, and if you were the king, I mean, nobody could say the king broke the law because the king was the law. When you got to be to the top, nobody could say, hey, you're wrong, we can't put you on trial because if I did it, I must be right. In their world where 
If you had power, you used it for yourself. Jesus comes and says, hey, that's not the way God is. God is using his power for your benefit. God's turning himself toward you, and he ultimately taught, modeled, and then demonstrated that. They never thought of God that way. I mean, you go back and read about the Greek, Roman, Egyptian. You read about the ancient gods. Human beings would play things for those gods. They were to be used and abused by the gods. Jesus says that's, that's not true of God. And regularly, you, you see people, even in Jesus' own movement, his own disciples, they try to correct him, and he'll say, hey, I'm going to take a back seat so, because... It's from the backseat that you actually lead, that you have to get behind people and serve people, get out front, and they go, hey, Jesus, I get what you're saying, and nobody teaches like you, but you're wanting to start a movement, and you're wanting to change the world. Hey, man, you've got to use your power. You've got to use that for your benefit, and if you can't use that for your benefit, you're never going to get where. And Jesus goes, hey, you know, that's, that's this old kingdom world. That's the way everything in the world works. That's not the way we're going to work. Regularly, Jesus would say to people, hey, you know, the wealthy, their wealth came as a blessing, but it wasn't blessed, it wasn't given them for them. The wealth was primarily given to people to be a blessing so that they get to participate in being a blessing to others. God allows them to participate in what he's doing in the world. He, contis- he consistently taught that our stuff is a stewardship. And here's what you know. If you have any amount of money that you steward, you trust to a bank or an investor, you don't think that 10% of that money is yours and they 90% can do whatever they want. A stewardship is 100% you believe is yours, even though you entrusted it to them. 100% of it is yours. It's not theirs. They're just to manage it. Jesus taught that all of our stuff, it's a stewardship and it's a test. And the more that God blesses you with, and you're being tested with that, it's, it's not for you. It's to be used by you for the benefit of others. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, yeah, I'd like to get that test. <laughs> I'd like to be wealthy so I could go through that test. Well, just so you know, since you're listening to me, everybody listening to me here is in our country, 90% of the world thinks you're already undergoing the test because you're wealthier than 90% of the rest of the world. You're already in the test. And you're thinking, yeah, but yeah, but there are people that have more than I do. Jesus would regularly say, hey, what's in your hand? What, what do you have? So you don't have more than other people around you? What's in your hand? What are you doing with that? Are you using what I have given you for the benefit of other people? And Jesus consistently say, yeah, that... Well, Jesus, I have to take care of me. I, I get it. That's the way this world works. That's the kingdom of this world. I have come to introduce something totally different. Power is not given primarily for the powerful. Wealth is not given for the wealthy. He's confronted with this temptation. And he comes at him again and again and again to use the power for himself to get to the end that he ultimately deserves. And again and again, it comes to him. That's why this temptation, I'm convinced, is the one that will go with him for the next three years. Again, the devil took him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. How do you do that? I, I don't know. I don't know how that happened. And he tells Jesus, I'll give you all their authority and their splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. All I'm asking you do is just to recognize that it's mine to give. And I'm not asking that you recognize it. I'm just asking you to bow for a moment, not forever. 
And if you'll bow and recognize it's mine to give in a moment, I'll give you authority all over, over all of it. I mean, we both know, Jesus, you have the right to this. You are the rightful heir to this. You have the right to have authority over this. And it's what you're ultimately here to do. It's what God is driving at. So why waste time? Hey, dude, let's just cut to the chase. In a moment, just do what I'm asking you to do, and we can get all of this. Now. Why do you have to make it so hard? Just do it. You deserve it. I mean, who do you know that says no to what they deserve? Who says no to what they know they deserve? Who, who does that? It's the people you respect the most. It, it's people that you know. It's the best people. Great people in our world. And the point the tempter was making is, is not the point that Jesus was trying to bring to the world. He's missing what Jesus has been saying all along, that Jesus didn't come to gain the kingdoms of this world. Jesus came to set up a whole new kingdom. His kingdom wasn't going to be the kingdom of this world. It wasn't going to be in this world. It was going to be in the hearts of men and women. He was going to build a different kind of kingdom, a kind of kingdom where... One has wealth and they use it for the benefit of those that don't have. One has power and they use it for the benefit of those who are weak. And one who has influence leverages it for those who have no influence. A kingdom where the subjects don't give up their life for the king, but the king gives up his life for the subjects. And the devil just couldn't get his mind around it and he missed it again and again and again. And so have some of us. We miss it all the time. So Jesus said to him, get out of here satan just get out of here for the scriptures say you must worship the lord god and serve only him and then the text says when the devil had finished tempting jesus he left until the next opportunity came in other words the devil's saying hey that was that was round one good round one see you when the time's right and then i love that luke in the next verse says after this, Jesus went back north to Galilee, and the power of the Spirit and the news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. And because I think Jesus has just the best sense of humor when he gets done in Galilee, he gets to go to a wedding, and at the wedding, he does what the devil sort of wanted him to do. He doesn't turn a rock into bread. <laughs> he turns water into wine, but even that he does not do for his own benefit. He does it for the benefit of the bride and groom to serve somebody else. And if you don't know that story that Jesus goes and he turns water into wine, do you know why he turns water into wine? Because his mama asked him to. Which if I were an old time preacher, this is the point where I would say, so the point of this story is, hey, always say yes to your mama and no to the devil. But the real point of this thing is, Jesus came to do something different than we often think. And that Jesus... At this point, early on, he's offered what on some level all of us really want, but he refused it because Jesus had not come to take over the kingdoms of this world. He had come for a total different reason. He had come to take on the sin of this world. And though he was the Lord of this world, he did not come to lord his power over this world. He came to be a ransom for us. He wanted to use his power for us. In fact, 
At the end of his life, when Jesus is going up to Jerusalem to, he knows for the last time he's going to give his life, and we're going to look at this in a few weeks, he gets his, his guys all together, and he contrasts the kingdom of this world, and he says, hey, guys, you know how in the kingdom of this world, people who power lord it over other people, and they make everybody serve them, but he says, it must not be so among us. Those who want to lead must serve, for even I, the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. In the very last moments, he's saying to them the same thing he'd said to the devil at this very first moment. I did not come for the kingdoms of this world. I came to set up a whole new kingdom. And this me first, do what's best for me, serve me, protect me, go for me, do what I want for me, go further into me. That is not what I am here to do, he said. I know how that works, but I'm telling you, that's not what I've come for, and that's not the kind of kingdom I'm going to establish. And here's, here's why this is so important. And it's really important, regardless of your, your religious belief or what you think about God or what you think about the Bible or how you feel about Jesus. Do you know what Jesus valued more than kingship in this world? What he valued more than power and authority and what was best for him? You know what he valued? He valued you. He valued me. Because you are a part of the many he came to ransom, and so am I. You and I, regardless of what you think about Jesus or what you believe at the moment or how far you feel away from any of this, no matter how much power you have or how much money you have, you do not have the power to overcome death and you don't have the power to overcome even the temptation that ultimately winds up causing you to do things that you know ultimately aren't good for you. He came to ransom you because regardless of how much money you have, your money can't buy you forgiveness. And I'm not even talking about forgiveness with God. Your money can't get you forgiveness from the people who you love that you wish would forgive you for things. The kingdoms of this world and the values of this world, they don't even hint at a solution to the things that really matter to human beings. He came to ransom. He came to ransom us from those things, regardless of what you believe, and regardless of what you've been taught. You are part of the many that Jesus came to ransom. So what hung in the balance of this temptation? You did, and I did. And do you know what hangs in the balance of your temptation to go further into your self-protection and your self-interest? You do. And you already knew that. Because you know that the more you go into you, the smaller your life gets, and the smaller your life gets, and when it gets all about you, it ain't much life. And that's why Jesus asked this question. So what good is it? I mean, come on, what good is it, really? What good is it if you gain the whole world and you lose you? What is good is it if you get everything you want and in the end, you lose you? No matter what you believe about Jesus or what you think is true, what have other people have told you about this? People who live the biggest and best lives in this world, they live their life for the sake of other people. And Jesus said, hey, I want that for you. I want to lead you to that. But that doesn't start with you doing what's best for you. It starts with you following me. And we're going to see that call again and again and again. And it starts again next week. But for some of you, that call has come to you today while I've been talking to you. So if you're willing right now, I'd like to ask you to bow your heads and I'd like to give you a moment 
to think about that and to make a decision. So would you bow your heads? Would you be willing to pray right now? Are you at a place where you're willing to say to Jesus, Jesus, I, I have followed me long enough and following me is not getting me where I want to be. So I'm willing to follow you. You could just say that to him right now. Help me to live the life you want me to live. And if you're here and you want to make that decision, you're joined in, would you take your phone out right now and go to ashleyparkchurch.com and click on the Make a Decision button? Fill that out, submit it. And it talks about, I want to follow Jesus, or I know the next step for me is baptism, or I just want to talk to somebody. You submit that. We'll help you in this decision as you come from you and following you to following Jesus. We'd help you take your next steps in that, whatever they are. If you don't have your phone with you, before you leave today, would you talk to somebody in a green shirt? Tell them the decision you're making. Just walk up to them and tell them, hey, I, I wanted to make that decision, but I didn't have my phone. They'll help you. They'll lead you to the next step in that. Now, Father, I pray for people that have questions or people that have already made this decision. Help them to submit that or help them talk to somebody before they leave. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for the life that you give us. Thank you for your son, for him overcoming and turning himself over for our sake, for providing for us, being a ransom for us. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all for coming. I hope you have a great week and you're back for week three of Jesus is Greater Than.